Welcome to the Marxist Think Tank podcast, an attempt to look at the world from a class-conscious perspective and to build. I would like to uh, make a statement uh, concerning guns in the light of the assassination of uh, Kennedy. Uh, first of all, our position on guns and violence in general, on war in general, is one of uh, being against war and being against violence. And uh, this is not a change position, uh, if it seems uh, in contradiction to some of my other, uh, earlier statements, simply because uh, people have not understood uh, what I was saying in the first place. That um, I say that violence, uh, war, and guns are a thing that the Black Panther Party uh, would like to see gotten rid of. That we absolutely um, are, are against uh, people uh, uh, killing each other and committing violence on each other. But also, we recognize that we, we don't uh, advocate that the oppressed people, that the victims, uh, leave themselves uh, uh, subject to the aggressions of the criminal. And these are the people who are forcing uh, uh, us to a state of subjugation and uh, 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 keeping us in a state of slavery. And this is the people all over the world. Uh, for instance, uh, I'm sure the Vietnamese people uh, would like uh, very much uh, for uh, this government uh, to give up its guns. Because that would mean that the uh, military would disarm itself and stop killing little Vietnamese children and women and destroying them. Uh, I think I stated earlier uh, that our, the motto of the Panther is that uh, we're advocates of the abolition of war. We do not want war, but war can only be abolished through war. And in order to get rid of the gun, we find it necessary to take up the gun. So the first thing uh, to do is not to disarm the victim, but uh, disarm the aggressor. Disarm the person who's for causing the violent incidents. Uh, the United States has been uh, visiting uh, uh, violence upon the world or causing violence upon the world uh, for years upon weak, oppressed people. And that we are against this and uh, we would like uh, for this to be changed and we are going to uh, change it by any means necessary. So, therefore, that uh, in the final analysis, that we would like for total disarmament to exist, but first we would have to disarm the cause of the disturbance, and the cause of the disturbance is U.S. imperialism and the violence that uh, that um, is um, the violence uh, that is in this country is only a reflection of the violent nature of the country in the first place. Uh, you don't expect to uh, go to someone else's home and uh, disturb things and uh, act violently and expect for your home to stay in a state of peace and tranquility. Uh, the first thing you have to do is stop your actions against other people and then violence will stop. But I think this country is so hung up on violence and ruled by force, the club and the gun, until it will be very difficult for them to even pass uh, legislation uh, to get rid of guns. And if they do pass legislation to get rid of guns, that the Black Panther Party is going to keep an eye on who 
maintains his guns. Uh, if they uh, want to disarm people, I would say first start disarming uh, the vicious uh, uh, police force that uh, occupy our communities throughout the country, where we die, uh, we're brutalized each day, and we're shot down in the street. Our little kids are shot down in the street by criminals with guns uh, under the skies, going under the facade of peace officers. So, in the final analysis, that uh, we stand for total uh, disarmament, and this is not to exclude anyone. If you're going to disarm, then disarm. The police start with the police and end up with the uh, military. And uh, then that we would uh, advocate that all other countries disarm itself and violence will stop. Uh, because then the people will have more of a chance of a redress of grievance because the racist and imperialist will not be protected by his guns. And the only thing that protects him is guns. So the violence that, uh, that America inflicts throughout the world is now coming home to roost, as uh, Malcolm uh, uh, said before his death. That, uh, that when uh, Kennedy's brother was killed, he made the... Uh, 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 statement of the chickens have come home to roost, and uh, I think that uh, this is an appropriate statement at this time that uh, the chickens have come home to roost. And uh, today we have uh, Caleb Maupin. We're speaking to Caleb Maupin, and uh, we're going to be talking to him for a few things. So welcome, welcome, Caleb. Welcome. Glad to be here. Great, great. Uh, so yeah, Caleb, we're going to be talking about a few things. Uh, I'm sure many people know who you are, uh, particularly people who listen to our podcast. Um, and I think many people would like to hear your thoughts on a number of things. Um, but we would like to discuss, obviously, China, China. Uh, Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn, uh, as well as various other things. So what, what I'd like to do is if we could start with um, probably throwing ourselves into the future, actually, and for you particularly, throwing ourselves, throwing yourself a bit geographically far away uh, to uh, China and the future of socialism in China and sort of what you think that looks like. Um, you know, is it is it is Chinese socialism going to grow into something more familiar? Is it going to return? Uh, is it going to, is it going to change into something entirely new or different? Uh, yeah. What, what do you see there? Well, I think if you read the publications of the Chinese Communist Party, the goal is to build a moderately prosperous socialist society in the near future. Um, and they have worked very hard toward that goal. Uh, their aim is the total eradication of poverty within China as well as the expansion of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and the One Belt, One Road Initiative. Uh, the idea is that China will continue to flourish uh, with a state centrally planned economy, uh, with state-controlled megacorporations like Huawei Technologies, uh, with poverty alleviation programs, with infrastructure, 
uh, with with breakthroughs in fusion energy technology. And as China expands, it'll it'll expand on a global level and trade with other countries. Then they will become prosperous uh, as well, and there'll be more infrastructure and countries raising out of poverty, uh, a new relationship between countries based on win-win cooperation instead of the predatory free market policies we see coming out of Western financial institutions. Um, and uh, I, I can hope that the Chinese Communist Party will continue to offer leadership about how to do that. It'll be a mixture of private and public entities. It'll be, uh, it'll be a, a combination of different tactics and trade with different countries. But the goal is to raise people out of poverty and get us toward a society of huge amounts of material abundance. And my thinking is that the long-term ultimate vision of the Chinese Communist Party, just like the long-term ultimate vision of all Marxists, is a world with so much vast material abundance that the need for a state and coercion can begin to wither away. And people can start to take what they need and do what they feel like doing from each according to his ability, from each according to their needs. And, uh, and we can have that ultimate Marxist vision of a stateless, classless world. That's, I think, many hundreds and thousands of years in the future, but I think that's the ultimate vision. Okay, wow. So, so you see it as a, a really long-term, uh, very long game. So hundreds or thousands of years, you're saying there. Well, total communism. I mean, the ultimate goal of a stateless, classless world requires so much material abundance to exist. There needs to be no wants whatsoever. I mean, there can't be any, any you know, notion of poverty or being without, and that would eliminate the need for anyone to hoard anything. I mean, that's the ultimate Marxist vision. And it's as different as, as uh, from our society as, as our society today is from hunter-gatherer civilization. I mean, it's, it's, it's a whole new world, a whole new mode of production based on so much technological advancement and abundance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, you mentioned the, the One Belt, One Road initiative there. Uh, what, what do you think, um, I mean, there are some, uh, some voices uh, raising concerns that, uh, that, you know, the infrastructure that they're building uh, isn't uh, balanced or it isn't um, fair to what they're taking, particularly in terms of Africa, in terms of resources. What are your thoughts on that criticism? Well, I'm sure that there is room for criticism and that, that you know, I mean, Africa has been the victim of so much colonialism and destruction. There's a very good book uh, by Walter Rodney, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, that talks about the hundreds and hundreds of years uh, that Africa has been subject to economic looting and such. So I can understand why African people would want to be on guard against such a thing. And there have been instances that we've seen where there have been examples of Chinese corporations mistreating people and such. And that's something that should be opposed. But overall, I think China's goal is to make these countries more prosperous and to make China more prosperous at the same time. Uh, they see it as kind of having mutual interests. Um, I think another factor uh, is the is the issue of, of oil and fossil fuels. Western capitalism controls the world uh, because of its control of the fossil fuel markets. Let's be real about that. I mean, it's it's oil that kind of defines Wall Street in London. I mean, if you look at the big banks on Wall Street, Chase Bank. That very much is ExxonMobil, and it's the Rockefeller family, and J.P. Morgan and the Morgan dynasty is in there as well. Uh, you look at BP, uh, you know, British Petroleum, that's very much the Rothschilds, that's very much HSBC Bank, and that Western capitalism is fossil fuels. So China is working very, very hard to reduce its fossil fuel dependency as a country. And that has involved exploring and just expanding the electric car market like crazy. 
And that, of course, requires new metals uh, that haven't been used, right? And a lot of these metals come from African countries. Uh, but it has also involved the Chinese space program. I mean, China has poured more co- more money than any other country into fusion energy research. And that that recent, uh, you know, uh, lunar rover that they launched onto the far side of the moon, uh, that was about getting a, a rare Earth element called helium-3, um, which could be very key in fusion energy research. Um, and China very much wants to get out of the trap of fossil fuels. Uh, humanity is trapped on fossil fuels. And I think that the big four super major oil companies that dominate the fossil fuel markets, that's Chevron, BP, Shell, and uh, ExxonMobil, uh, would very much like to, to keep the world trapped on fossil fuels. And they're promoting, they, they admit climate change is a reality, but they say it just means that we have to end human progress. We have to end human development. All the developing countries just need to stay poor Uh, because uh, if they continue to grow, they'll use more fossil fuels. That's bad for the environment. So, you know, we're at the top of the game, and we can just declare game over on on human progress. But China puts forward a vision of sustainable development, arguing that human beings can actually get beyond the trap of fossil fuels. We can develop new modes of energy that are much more sustainable, um, and we can get out of this. And I think that's very, very promising. But that involves exploring, you know, Africa and the use of a lot of these rare earth uh, minerals and elements that before weren't very valuable. You know, there was a book called uh, The Limits to Growth that was published by the Club of Rome. And it was kind of an environmental manifesto from the 1970s. And if it predicted that the, the planet would run out of oil uh, by the 1990s. Well, the reason it made that prediction was according to the, you know, the methods that were available at that time, if, if we had just used the oil that was available at that time, we would have already run out of oil. But we've developed hydraulic fracking. We've developed deep sea drilling. Um, and that the, the nature of humanity is our ability to get beyond and develop, to develop higher and new methods of fuel and energy. And that's what a lot of this ecological pessimism doesn't quite understand is that, that mm-hmm. yes, if we just use the same resources we're using now, we're screwed. I mean, we're going to have <laughs> a pretty big catastrophe pretty soon. But humans have always been able to overcome that and advance and get to higher modes. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's brilliant. I, I think I was unaware about the fusion uh, research that's going to taking place. Um, okay, so yeah, so it's a, a society building a society that's materially extremely abundant, uh, wealthy. It's a very long game in terms of the ultimate goal of a class of the society. Um, but in the meantime, so while uh, while that's going on, while that abundance is being created, what do you think the the class contradictions um, within China, uh, particularly, we've seen the emergence or reemergence of uh, of somewhat of a of a bourgeois or a capitalist class within China. What do you think the uh, there are? Of course, I assume you you agree with me that there are going to be clashes between. Uh, the working class between uh, these those classes. Um, yeah. How, how do you think that's going to play out? What will happen? Well, you know, the Soviet Union at the time that it was falling, it was very clear that it needed reform. It needed to change. Right. And that the centrally planned economies that existed in the Soviet Union had some real strengths. They they raised all these European countries out of poverty. They industrialized them. They built huge steel mills and huge power plants. And, and they did a huge amount in just, you know, turning these societies that had been agrarian and impoverished into industrialized countries with full literacy and education and electricity and running water and modern educational systems and modern hospitals. But they were lagging behind when it came to consumer goods. Right. And that, you know, socialism and state run industries are great for producing steel, 
They're great for running power plants. They're great for producing textile. But when it comes to flashy, shiny things that make life enjoyable, uh, you know, you, you need a market sector for that kind of thing. I think that we've realized that, right? That, that, that it, you know, when it comes to hotels and restaurants, when it comes to uh, children's toys, these kind of things, you can't have government bureaucrats drawing up a state central plan about how we're going to make them and determining what they look like. You need there to be an element of, you know, you know, people being creative and coming up with their own design and getting startup money. You need there to be an element of the consumer picking, you know, which one is the best and deciding which is best. That you need to have a market sector within socialism to strengthen the overall state run economy. That certain things, uh, certain things do need to be need to be managed on a market basis while scarcity still exists, right? I mean, obviously, in the ultimate goal of a stateless, classless world, that wouldn't be the case. But there are some things like hotels and restaurants. I wouldn't want to go to a hotel run by the government that wasn't operated for profit. I wouldn't, you know. I mean, I hear stories of you know Soviet restaurants where you'd get the worst service ever because the less people who came, uh, the more food would be left over at the end of the night for the waiters to take home to their families, you know. Um, and and stuff like that goes on when you don't have. Now, I think worker cooperatives are actually a much better way of doing market-oriented things. I mean, for example, Huawei Technologies, the, the biggest telecommunications manufacturer in the world, before it became taboo, now in the United States, Huawei is like public enemy number one. But before they became taboo, back in 2015, the Harvard Business Review ran a great article about them, talking about how they're an example of how profit-sharing works because the way it works at Huawei Technologies, the workers don't get a, necessarily just a wage. It's based on how much the company produces and how much profit is produced. It's technically a cooperative um, under Chinese law. And that's why it grew so rapidly and has been such a success is because it's technically a private company. It's not a state-run industry, but it's subsidized by the state. Uh, but but it's very much an example of profit sharing being very effective. And I think that profit sharing, worker cooperatives, things like that are are very very much going to be a part of the socialism that emerges in the 21st century. I think that natural resources, banking, the lending of money, these kind of things are going to be run by the state. But we're going to have cooperatives and we're going to have private companies that function just like capitalist private companies. But the, the idea is that profits will not be in command. Right. And I think China is a great example of that. Profits are not in command in China. The Chinese Communist Party is in command. And uh, when you talk about the contradictions, I mean, I mean, we've seen billionaires in China get the death penalty. For example, I, we, I, I've read many articles about the, uh, the I, I, I'm going to pronounce it horribly wrong, but the Jintao <laughs> culture, they called it in the United States, where if CEOs and executives were breaking the law and polluting or, or mistreating people, they had to apologize on national television to the country. Um, and that, that there is a capitalist class in China, but it's under the boot of the Chinese Communist Party with 90 million members that's in every neighborhood. And the Chinese Communist Party doesn't just function on behalf of those wealthy people. Those wealthy people are very afraid of the Chinese Communist Party. And they, they know that the party has the power. Um, in the United States, sure, we have a government that's very big. But that government simply facilitates uh, the profits of corporations. Corporations run the government in the United States. Well, when you look at China... The corporations are controlled by the government. The government runs the corporations and it's to their benefit. I mean, it wants them to be prosperous and make lots of you know products and help the country get wealthier overall. But they're required to function in accordance with the overall state central plan, the five year plans that the party sets. And it's it's not a market economy by any means. It's really funny because in the United States, when you argue with libertarians, 
uh, they'll insist, you know, communism has just failed everywhere it's ever been tried. And you point to all the huge achievements of socialism and you point to China and the fact that it's raised so many out of poverty and is the second largest economy in the world. And they'll say, well, everyone knows China's capitalist. And I laugh at that because these are the same people that think Obamacare is communism, right? Even though we have a fully private healthcare system, Obama's regulations made it communism. So Obamacare is communism. But China, with huge state-run industries, right, huge state-run right. banks, a five-year central plan, a Marxist-Leninist party that calls the shots, somehow it must be capitalist, because only capitalism right. can produce growth. Uh, that's the myth of the 20th century, I would say, the idea that only capitalism can produce economic growth. We've seen so many examples to the contrary of it. It's shocking, but you just hear it growing up. I heard it in school. Communism doesn't work. It's failed everywhere it's ever been tried. You hear it on television. You hear it in, in the university. You hear it from your parents. You hear it from your coworkers. We're just bombarded with this big lie that nowhere has socialism ever been successful. Socialism has been successful many, many different places. And China is a great example of it being successful in our time. Hmm. Okay. I think, uh, I think you've done a great job of covering a lot of ground there in reference to China. So, uh, I think we'll, 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 oh, sorry, my camera's still off there. One second. Sure. So we'll, uh, yeah, we'll carry on from, uh, from our next point, to be honest. I think we've yeah. covered China very well. Um, so I just want to turn, turn the globe a bit to, uh, to the West slightly or to the Northwest, I suppose, uh, to Russia. Uh, obviously, this is kind of a bit more of a recent thing, but uh, Putin obviously has just uh, won an extension to his uh, presidential term limits. Uh, so do you think, that he's going to fill uh, those terms and fill both of those terms and, 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 you know, run the full course? I don't see why he wouldn't. Um, you know, Russian President Vladimir Putin, as I saw, I've covered Russian elections. I've been to Russia and been to think tanks. I've been in Putin's presence on three different occasions. Um, and I've seen the way the public interacts with him. I've talked to Russians on the street and asked their opinion of him. You know, Putin won the respect of the Russian population because he brought the country out of the horror of the 1990s. When the free market was restored in Russia under Yeltsin, the country was looted. I mean, mass unemployment, 80% of the farms went bankrupt, factories closing down their doors. The country was just devastated in the 1990s. And the Putin administration came in uh, on a platform that they were going to fix Russia's economy. Putin actually wrote an academic dissertation about strategic planning of the economy using natural resources. And he put it into practice, um, you know, and he took Gazprom and Rosneft uh, to to, you know, an oil company, a natural gas company. He made them publicly controlled and he made them gigantic state controlled mega corporations. And with them, he's then subsidized the kind of the rebirth of the Russian economy. Now, the GDP of, of modern day Russia is higher than than the Soviet Union was at the time of its collapse. And he brought them out of the problem. Now, there's still a lot of problems in Russia with corruption. Uh, they still have a lot of problems. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the, there's still more, much more poverty than there was during the time of the Soviet Union. But overall, he saved the country from that that crisis. And he's done a lot of things. He built an agricultural system, for example. I mean, Russia now has the biggest farming agricultural sector that it's ever had in its history. Um, you know, it was one of the biggest harvests. I mean, he created a farming boom and a lot of land in Siberia because of global warming is now, you know, farmable. And so there's been a, a huge boom there. There's been a boom in the far east uh, of the country and regions that were just kind of very, very poor and isolated. You know, you look at the, what's been said at the Vladivostok economic forums. Uh, Putin has presided over Russia's economic strength. Now, there hasn't been difficulties, but because of that, he's really won the respect of, of a lot of the population. And, um, 
you know, he, he was part of the United Russia Party for a long time. Now he's independent of the United Russia Party. He's not in any party. Um, and he's just kind of a figure that's associated with the with the resurrection of the country from the devastation of the free market, restoring the national pride, ending kind of the humiliation that went on. And I, I think he will, uh, you know, serve those terms. And I think that the people will probably, you know, reelect him and continue to reelect him. Um, and there are, you know, but there's different political views in Russia. You know, I had the opportunity of of studying closely the campaign of the Communist Party of the Russian Federation and and Pavel Grudinin and 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 Zhuganov and what went on there. Uh, there's also a, a very right wing kind of nationalist party in Russia called the Liberal Democrats, and there are there are many Russians who would sympathize that way. You know, Russia is a, a mixed political bag. There's many Russian youth who look to the West and have kind of a fantasy that the United States is this land of milk and honey and you know everyone in the united states just runs around with ipads and iphones and it's just this you know we live the 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 real housewives of new jersey lifestyle over here um so you know there's a lot of different political ideas and thought in russia you know in the current time uh Mm -hmm. but but i think that putin will prevail i think he probably represents at this point you know policies that the majority of the population would like to see continue Mm. so so Uh, you did mention um the russian communist party there and uh I mean, obviously, I'm sure that many people will be aware that there are lots. There's been lots of recent polls. In fact, I think there's a poll every year by the Levada Center about uh, Russians comparing life in the Soviet Union uh, and comparing life now, and which one they think is better. And I think every year except for 2012, they've always said life in the USSR was better. Um, uh, so, you know, with that fact, um, why don't Russians vote more so for the Russian Communist Party? I mean, also, I, I know, I'm sure you might be able to help us out actually with this one because uh, you, you mentioned that you've obviously studied Russian elections. Um, with 1996, I know that that might be the exception that, uh, you know, the U.S. Uh, obviously interfered with that intellection with Yeltsin and, um, and Zhuganov. Um, and many people think that actually had there not been in that interference that he would have won and we would have seen a Russian Communist Party in power uh, back then and potentially now. But the main question there is obviously why don't they vote more so for the Russian Communist Party if they do have such a a, a, um, a longing for the for the days of the Soviet Union? Well, I I don't think that admiring and recognizing the strengths of the Soviet Union necessarily translates to ideologically agreeing with with Marxism Leninism, and I think that that's the difference. For example, in in Russia today, Stalin is very popular. Joseph Stalin is viewed as a national hero who defeated the Nazi invaders, who industrialized the country and raised them up from poverty. Um, but Lenin is not too popular um, these days. Lenin is viewed as kind of a, a guy who gave up a lot of Russian territory, got the country into a mess of civil war and unrest, uh, was hostile to the church. Um, and that, that, you know, I mean, the Russian Orthodox Church, for example, uh, very much admires, uh, you know, uh, many things about the Soviet Union, but ideologically completely rejects Marxism and materialism and such. And that, that Soviet nostalgia doesn't translate necessarily to voting for the Communist Party. Um, you know, and, and, you know, the Communist Party itself uh, is very, very, there's many different views within it. Um, but, you know, the leader of it, Zhuganov, uh, very much is a, a Russian Orthodox believer. Um, he very much wants to implement Deng Xiaoping style socialism. Um, and he's very in favor of expanding Russian Chinese relations. Um, um, whereas, you know, there are other people in the Communist Party that are materialist, atheist, Marxist, Leninists. Um, there are more utopian socialist trends, um, you know, so it's very complicated. Um, there are many, many different voices uh, within the Communist Party. But the Communist Party itself, I don't think they have a, a monopoly on nostalgia. OK, I see. OK. Um, all right. Let's let's turn our, our globe a bit further west now. 
um, to the U.S. and obviously to the to the more present, and um, particularly, <clears throat> well, actually, the U.S. and the U.K. So there's two candidates, uh, Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn, and uh, both of them within their respective countries, within their respective uh, parties, have recently uh, been pushed out or uh, you know not voted in. Uh, to positions of leadership within their own parties, also within um, the prime minister and the president, presidential race, respectively. Um, what, do you, what do you think the differences and similarities are between how how the establishment uh, within their party um, reacted uh, to them and to their rise? Well, you know, on the surface, there are some key parallels. Um, you know, this is these are both figures that are significantly to the left of the mainstream of their party. Uh, these are, are figures that, that are very much talking about capitalism being bad and are associated with leftist progressive movements in the history of their respective countries. And so there's, and they were both subject to kind of demonization uh, by the mainstream media. And so there's certainly parallels there. Um, I would say the difference, uh, the differences are pretty stark. For example, I mean, Jeremy Corbyn, you know, he was running and he was the leader of the Labour Party, which historically, I mean, you go back to Clause 4 of the Labour Party's constitution, the Labour Party did advocate the banks, factories and industries being run by the people and a, a state, you know, socialist economy. Um, and, you know, Jeremy Corbyn maintained a platform of, of you know, wanting to, wanting to move towards socialism. They wrote a very, very radical manifesto for the Labour Party. Um, and uh, he is associated with anti-war activism. Corbyn has a history of being an anti-war activist, of speaking up around all kinds of issues uh, and, and really being an anti-imperialist. Bernie Sanders, you know, his his views have significantly shifted. Back in the 1970s and 80s, you could call him, yes, he was definitely part of the far left and a Marxist and such, but his views have significantly shifted. Um, he supported the bombing of Yugoslavia, um, and he, he also, uh, he he, you know, very much was he was a supporter of the war in Afghanistan, not the war in Iraq, but he supported the war in Afghanistan and that his views significantly shifted. And he also made clear that he didn't really want to get rid of capitalism. I mean, he said many times that his vision of democratic socialism was not contrary to capitalism. It was just an expansion of the welfare state. He presented himself as a revival of some of the Rooseveltian policies of the of the 1930s and 40s, taxing the wealthy, providing health care and education. So there, there was a difference in what the two of them advocated, but the response to them, sure, was was the same. It was a vile kind of, you know, you know, demonization. And even though they were wildly popular among the rank and file of their respective parties, they were rejected. Um, but I think there are millions of people within the Western countries who are open to socialist politics like never before. Um, they are aware that there's something wrong with greed is good capitalism um, and that we need to get to some kind of alternative. Unfortunately, uh, the the ruling elite of the West uh, has has decided that they will tolerate some level of right wing populism, but they're not going to tolerate any left wing populism. Um, and that the left is, is is weak because the political infrastructure uh, that once existed, you know, the mass communist and socialist groupings has really been eroded since the, the, the end of the, the Cold War, whereas the ideological right wing seems to have the upper hand. And so a lot of the anti-capitalist and populist sentiments are being hijacked by more right wing forces. Um, and I think many people who would be open to socialism and leftism uh, are becoming right wing. And that's a big problem. Uh, but it's mainly because the, the left in the Western countries, most especially in the United States, has kind of shifted away from trying to appeal to people on a populist basis. Um, there, you know, there was kind of a reinvention of left wing politics. There was a lot of covert CIA money involved in it uh, with the Congress for Cultural Freedom program 
Uh, you know, and you can read about how figures like Susan Sontag and Herbert Marcuse and others were kind of put forward to represent leftism. And leftist politics in the West kind of shifted away from being fighting for the working class and fighting for the majority and, and organizing the economy to serve the people to kind of fighting for individualism and this kind of vague anti-totalitarianism and this notion that uh, the society should be less authoritarian, that there should be more individual liberty and this kind of kind of fear of fear of conformity and such. Um, and the Cold War left that was kind of reinvented was very much a shift away from Marxist and left wing politics. So I think the left is struggling to try and figure out how it can be populist once again. Um, whereas the right wing, uh, the right wing is kind of, you know, you know, basically been able to kind of hijack uh, the, the popular feelings that, that the rich are are out of control. I mean, Brexit is a great example. Marxists mm -hmm. and socialists have always opposed the European Union. Uh, but it's the right wing that leads the anti-Brexit movement, whereas many of the voices that purport to represent leftism and socialism in the United Kingdom will say that if you oppose, if you if you support Brexit, uh, that means that you're a fascist or a Nazi or and, and this atmosphere has been created where if you even try to be a populist in left wing circles, you're immediately accused of being a Nazi or, or a fascist. And and that atmosphere has got to change. And leftism has once again got to be an ideology that appeals to working people, uh, not to intellectuals and people who feel alienated from society. Okay, so I think uh, you said uh, that Sanders and Corbett had both been rejected, and and um, you know certainly there were uh, times when they were put to uh, a public vote, and you know yes they were uh, defeated, particularly in the case of Corbyn. Um, but I think maybe if we could put some more detail on, you know I think when you say rejected, there might be a bit more to it than that, in the sense that the parties themselves uh, pushed their candidates out or pressurized their candidates or ostracized their candidates, uh, these guys. Particularly in the case of Sanders, um, you know, with 2016, uh, you know, the whole uh, emails and, and whatnot with the, the Democratic National Convention, um, you know, what what interests do you think specifically, because we, we could be sort of broad and say, oh, just, you know, the, the capitalist class, it was the business class, but specifically, are you aware of more details as to which kinds of which companies specifically or which industrialists specifically were anti-Sanders or are anti-Sanders uh, within the DNC, within the Democratic Party? Well, I think that Sanders, you know, he has certainly moved to be more in favor of military interventionism around the world, but he has an anti-war record. Uh, I actually wrote an article about a deep state grudge against Bernie Sanders. And um, I, I talked about how, you know, D Bernie Sanders was at one point an electoral uh, delegate of the Socialist Workers Party. Um, and that was at a time that the Socialist Workers Party was suing the FBI and was taking the FBI to court because the FBI had meddled in elections to prevent the Socialist Workers Party from winning and to had arrested members on false charges and such. And that, you know, if you saw the rant uh, that was given against Bernie Sanders on U.S. television by uh, the liberal TV host uh, Chris Matthews, um, it, it seemed almost incoherent. But on national TV, he's saying that you know, if we had lost the Cold War, there would have been executions in Central Park. Some people like Bernie Sanders would have been cheering those executions. That doesn't make any sense. That just sounds like the paranoid ramblings of an old man. Um, but he probably is speaking for the fact that within the intelligence apparatus of the United States, uh, within the FBI, especially within the military manufacturing companies, there was a feeling that Whatever Sanders says, he's not trustworthy. This is not a, a war guy. This is a guy who's been to anti-war rallies. This is a guy who met with the Sandinistas. This is a guy who praised Fidel Castro. 
And this is a guy who's just not going to be going along with the Pentagon and what it wants in the world. And I think the military-industrial complex had a lot to do with it. I think that U.S. intelligence had a lot to do with it. The fact that the New York Times ran this strange story about how the, the KGB had discussed Bernie Sanders as possibly an asset during the 80s. You know, where did that how, how did that, you know, that that piece of information get handed over to The New York Times? I think it was very much a, a deep state apparatus uh, move that they didn't trust him. And I've said that in our time, I feel like the divide within the capitalist class is very much, you know, a longstanding divide between the rich and the ultra rich. Um, and that, you know, the richest of the rich in this country, um, you know, the, the super major oil companies, Silicon Valley, um, you know, some of the, the wealthier families, the Morgans, the DuPonts, the Carnegie's, the Rockefellers. Um, that they very much have a more managerial view of the United States, a long-term view. Like, they want to keep society stable. They're at the top, and they want to stay at the top, and they want to keep things just stable. Whereas Trump seems to represent the lower levels of American capital. Um, and those lower levels of American capital feel like the game is rigged against them. They want the government to get out so there can be free competition in the marketplace. Um, and they resent the fact that they're not part of the club and that they don't have as much influence as the ultra-rich have. And it's, you know, the ultra-rich with the Democrats versus most of the rich that are with the Republicans. And that, that managerial ruling class that's, that's with the Democrats versus that entrepreneurial and more free market ruling class that's with the Republicans, that plays out pretty well if you look at the Trump administration and its allies. Betsy DeVos, right? You know, mm -hmm. she's, she's a billionaire, but where does her money come from? It comes from Amway, a multi-level marketing scheme where the people sell Tupperware to their neighbors. Um, and it also comes from military contracting companies. Her brother is Eric Prince of Blackwater. Right. If you look at who big Trump supporters tend to be, fracking companies that, that resent big oil, um, you know, and can see big oil as a competitor. Um, there's a lot of a lot of the pro-Trump capitalists are people that are locked out of the club, whereas the Democratic Party is the party of the ultra rich of Silicon Valley, of Bill Gates, of Jeff Bezos. And those folks are not big fans of Bernie Sanders. They don't they don't like Bernie Sanders. They don't like his his economic populism and they don't trust him to be a good ally in their effort to dominate the global markets and push Russia and China off. Um, so I think that I think that that's where where Bernie Sanders had his problem. However, the Democratic Party as a whole realizes that if it wants to compete with the Republicans, it needs populism. Right. It needs to, you know, give the impression it's a revolutionary movement. It needs to give the impression it's fighting the rich and the elite. So the Democrats have to sound more populist and they have to sound like they're building a movement and organizing the people. But at the same time, uh, they don't want to deliver the policies uh, that, that would actually, you know, that, that that would mean. So it's a contradiction um, and that there are big fights within the ruling class in our time. The U.S. ruling class is not on the same page. In the 1980s, Ronald Reagan used to say, they're, well, we're all friends after six. Well, they're not all friends after six anymore. There are big contradictions and divisions among the American ruling class. Mm. Just while we're on that point, so uh, the main contradictions between them are specifically based on their industry. So like you mentioned, fracking companies contradicting with the big oil companies. Are they particularly, are these the lines that divide the, the ruling class? Are, are there sure. interests? Sure, I would say there's also a, a difference in terms of, of, you know, the tech giants, for example. Uh, the tech giants would like to, you know, would like to do business with China. I mean, specifically the software, you know, I mean, they would like every person in China to have a Facebook page. They'd like every person in China to have a Twitter, right? Um, and that would be more money for the Silicon Valley, you know, uh, social media giants. Plus, it would give American intelligence way more insight into how the people in China think and, and would enable them to, to do all of that. Whereas Apple, you know, sees China as a competitor because of Huawei technologies. 
right? Huawei Technologies is, is making phones that are better than them. Uh, plus, American you know, manufacturing sees China as a competitor because China's making steel and selling it around the world and all of that. So, like, the manufacturing element would probably see China as a competitor, uh, whereas, you know, the, the, the tech giants, uh, you know, they see China as a potential market. Um, meanwhile, uh, oil, big oil sees China, you know, China needs oil. They'd like to sell China lots of oil, whereas the, the manufacturers uh, would like to like to see China pushed off the market. And so they can they can compete with them. It's short term interest. Right. And I think that the Democrats tend to see Russia as the primary threat because Russia, you know, they see Russia as, as competing, you know, with U.S. dominance in terms of social media and messaging around the world. Uh, they see Russia as a competitor in the oil and energy markets. That's who the Democrats are with. Whereas the Republicans see China as their primary competitor. Um, and it's a, it's a matter of what industry they're involved with. And I think that the intelligence apparatus, the CIA, um, you know, those folks tend to see Russia as their primary opponent and would like to get closer to China. Whereas the military industrial complex that's manufacturing based sees China as their major competitor. And they would like to they're not as concerned about Russia, but they see escalating with China as a great opportunity to sell weapons all over the Pacific. So I think there are just different short-term interests. But at the end of the day, the entire U.S. ruling class would like to see both Russia and China removed from the world market. They want the whole world to be their captive market. They want the whole world to stay poor and buy products from them so that they can stay rich. Um, it's just a matter of who is the most direct threat, uh, what kind of, what kind of um, you know, efforts are you involved in in beating back uh, international competitors and trying to keep a unipolar world. Um, I think it's just a matter of, of short-term divisions. But ultimately, the long-term vision is the same. Mm, okay, so I think with all of that sort of picture you've just drawn about massive global uh, ambitions of either part of the camp of the ruling class, uh, you know, whether to eliminate China, eliminate Russia, or both to dominate global markets uh, with massive economic interests, you know, and and wielding uh, and, and aiming for those kinds of ambitions, um, and then you sort of bring it back down to uh, people advocating for socialism within the parties that represent those various interests. I mean, it seems then almost mad uh, to think that you could try and get socialism pushed by uh, parties which represent such ambitious and massive forces that, you know, a, a bunch of people voting for something uh, at a caucus, uh, they're going to somehow unravel those ambitions. So sh surely it's just insane to think that socialism through the Democratic Party or socialism through labor is just uh, a pipe dream. Well, I think that conditions change um, and that, you know, every revolution in history, I would maintain, has begun as a division within the ruling class. Um, you know, you look throughout the world, it's when the capitalists fight with each other, they increasingly begin to recruit the workers to be their foot soldiers uh, in battles between them. Uh, and that happens, you know, in, in Russia, it, the majority of the ruling class wanted to get rid of the czar because he was incompetent. But then there was a big division in the ruling class about whether or not they would continue World War One, right? And I think the majority of the Russian capitalists wanted to continue fighting in World War One. They were aligned with American and British capital. But there were a lot of Brit uh, capitalists in Russia that that wanted to, you know, do business with Germany and didn't think World War One was in the interest. And you know, as the capitalists in the aftermath of the Tsar's overthrow, as the capitalists were fighting among themselves about whether or not to continue World War One. That created an opening for the Bolsheviks to be the anti-war party, and they built this mass organization on the basis of peace, land, and bread being the anti-war guys. Um, and then we saw how the 
pro-war wing of the capitalists had General Kornilov attempt to carry out a military coup and make himself the military dictator to aggressively continue World War I. And through that opening, uh, the Bolsheviks positioned themselves as defending the provisional government from the Kornilov reaction. Um, and pretty soon, their army was bigger than the provisional government's army. And pretty soon, they were able to take power as being kind of, you know, key in, you know, being representatives of the sections of Russian society that didn't want to continue World War I. The divisions within the ruling, ruling class created an opening, right? And if you look at the Chinese Revolution, it's a very similar story. I mean, you know, Chang, um, uh, Dr. Sun Yat-sen uh, led a, a section of all throughout Chinese society, people who wanted independence, people who wanted to develop the country. But the capitalists betrayed that. Chiang Kai-shek started killing communists and became kind of a puppet of the West. So it was Mao Zedong who took up the banner of continuing Dr. Sun Yat-sen's vision of creating a China with democracy, independence, and the people's livelihood. Um, and it was through that division created by Chiang Kai-shek's betrayal, and then eventually the Japanese invaders um, and, and China, you know, and, and the People's Liberation Army became well-loved for their heroic efforts to defeat the Japanese invaders. Those divisions created an opening for the working class. And throughout U.S. history, you can see this. The reason that the Communist Party USA was so strong during the 1930s was because of the fact that Roosevelt you know, was facing so much opposition within his own class. Um, you know, I mean, he, there was military coups attempted against him. There was the 1934 business plot. And Roosevelt and the section of the ruling class that supported Roosevelt were facing an onslaught of, you know, fascists, the National Association of Manufacturers, the Morgan family, Henry Ford, wanted to overthrow the U.S. government and set up a, a fascist dictatorship. So the communists entered a strategic alliance with Roosevelt, a popular front, then we're able to beat back, uh, beat back that element, and through doing that, they they had huge victories for the labor movement. The civil rights movement in this country was largely due to the fact that that Jim Crow segregation was hurting American imperialism in the long term. You know, in the long term, um, you know, I mean, it was it, the USSR was embarrassing the United States by showing the hypocrisy and showing the pictures of Emmett Till's mutilated body. On top of that, within the United States, within the Democratic Party, the urban political machines of the North were being constantly outvoted and weakened by the Jim Crow Dixiecrat wing of the Democratic Party in the South. So this division within the American ruling class about Jim Crow segregation created an opening for the civil rights movement to explode, for eventually the Black Panther Party to emerge. Um, you know, and, you know, and these divisions within the ruling class create openings that socialists can utilize and that revolutions in history generally start with a capitalist crisis um, where there is fighting among the ruling class. They don't know which way to go forward. And that creates an opening for the people to begin to assert their own agenda and become politically active. Capitalists are forced to bring people into politics to settle the scores among themselves. But that pretty soon leads to the people realizing that they can be political. They can take history into their own hands. They can build their own organizations and get rid of all of the capitalists, right? But it's a, it's a process that happens uh, amid a, a capitalist crisis. And I think we're facing a crisis of overproduction right now on a global level. Um, Marx talks about how technology eliminates jobs, um, you know, and that, that workers are removed from the assembly line. Capitalists are constantly trying to make a profit by doing so. However, machines don't create surplus value, only humans do. So that leads to a falling rate of profits, right? That's, that's right out of capital and, and Marx. 
Plus, on top of that, pretty soon you have a market that's glutted with products that can't be sold because workers are not on the assembly line. They can't buy back the products they're producing if you drive their wages down and eliminate them from production. And I think globally, due to artificial intelligence, uh, due to the computer revolution, we are facing a huge crisis of overproduction, right, where the worker cannot buy back the product he produces. The rate of profit the capitalist gets from the product he produces is, is much lower due to the fact that workers are replaced with machines. This is, this is the God of Damarung that Marx talked about. I mean, this is the, the crisis. I mean, World War I and World War II largely followed Henry Ford's innovations in terms of the assembly line production. It was because of, of Henry Ford making production so efficient with assembly lines and Taylorism, we had World War I. Well, what Henry Ford did was child's play compared to what artificial intelligence is doing in our right. time. I mean, we have never had a technological leap this big in terms of eliminating labor. This is a crisis that cannot be solved within capitalism. It necessitates moving toward a production, uh, a system of production that's not organized for profit, a centrally planned economy. That's the only way we can get out of this, this mess, um, you know, is that, that under capitalism, human beings can only work so long as their labor enriches a capitalist. And when you have a huge leap in production, the result is millions and millions of people having no place at the assembly line and having no means of subsistence. We now have a crisis of mass migration all over the world uh, as people don't have a place at the assembly line. We have a, a dropping standard of living in the Western countries. This is all the built-in crisis of capitalism that Marx long ago predicted. Um, and you'll notice that socialist countries like China, like Vietnam, uh, are surging ahead uh, because they have centrally planned economies. They're not subject to this irrational law, um, and so they're able to surge ahead. That doesn't mean they don't have problems with corruption and such, but it means that they're able to handle this capitalist crisis and move ahead in ways that the West can't. As the West, the West is crashing and burning uh, amid a crisis created by its own mode of production, the socialist countries are able to speed forward, continue eradicating poverty, and move forward. So. With that in mind, you've just mentioned a whole bunch of things that actually come together very well. So you've mentioned, yeah, crisis, a massive crisis of overproduction, fourth industrial revolution, which is only going to exacerbate that uh, with a huge amount of uh, exactly expanded production. So we have crisis, crisis, crisis. And you mentioned earlier that the US ruling class particularly is already in division. You said, you know, they're not singing from the same song sheet like they were in the 1980s. So we have a division in the ruling class. We have a huge crisis. Um, so, and as you mentioned, you already outlined that socialism is the, is the future uh, in the vein of, of something similar to China or Vietnam or, or the USSR. So how or what should communists or socialists who want to, you know, create that revolutionary moment, what do they need to do? What do they specifically do? This is probably the most important question um, for, for our, our listeners and for, so for communists. What, well, to, what is to be done? Well, one thing that I, I wrote about in my book, City Builders and Vandals in Our Age, is I wrote about the fact that there are really two types of people who become attracted to socialism and communism, right? No matter where you go in the world, no matter how good the economy is doing, you're always going to find what you call the revolutionary intelligentsia. And these are young people, uh, intellectuals, you know, middle class folks who think that the world is unfair um, and unjust. They're, they're, they're full of outrage. They want to change the world. Um, and those folks are very heroic, um, and they do amazing heroic things. Marx was one of those folks. Mao Zedong was one of those folks. Che Guevara was one of those folks. Trotsky and Lenin were among that milieu. The problem is that milieu always exists, and it by itself is never any, anywhere near you know, 10% of the population. That milieu cannot make a revolution on its own, right? 
Revolutions are made by the second group of people, which are the broad masses of people. And they only turn to socialism when there's a crisis, when the system makes their life unlivable, uh, when they can't get food, when society is unstable. They turn to socialist ideas as a way to get out of the crisis, right? And their, their motivation is very different than the motivations of the revolutionary intelligentsia. The revolutionary intelligentsia wants chaos because they're angry about injustice. The broad masses of people want stability and are interested in socialism because it offers stability. Um, and, you know, the, you know the, the, the revolutionary intelligentsia has a desire to feel heroic. They maybe are attracted to violence because they think it's romantic. The broad masses of people don't want violence. They want stability and peace and they want their family to be safe. And so this is a contradiction. And if you read What is to be Done, the key work by Lenin, Lenin is explaining to the revolutionary intelligentsia of Russia how they can operate in a way that they can organize the broad masses of people. That's what he's trying to do. He's saying to all these people that are, that are you know, excited about terrorism and, and adventurism, or maybe they're just kind of tailing after the workers and, and lecturing them, but he's telling them, you have to operate in a way that the broad masses of people can become socialists, right? And that this, this contradiction is something that needs to be resolved because right now in the West, the revolutionary intelligentsia is, is very broad, but it's largely become easily controlled by the intelligence agencies and by, by social media, and it's actually become a, a mechanism for destabilizing the world. I mean, a lot, of these, a, lot of the, a lot of the social media activity that goes on, whenever there's a regime the U.S. government wants to overthrow, they portray, they portray it like an evil regime, and the, the people protesting it are Che Guevara's out there, and it's the revolution— and that, that, you know, basically the West has figured out how to manipulate the revolutionary intelligentsia in a way that, one, it serves imperialism, and two, it, ha it will never have any contact with the broad masses of people, right? And that needs to change. We need to develop a socialist populism in Western countries, and we need to develop a socialism that can appeal to the broad masses of people. I have tried to popularize the slogan, we need a government of action to fight for working families. Um, and I've tried to popularize that slogan and get it everywhere because that really is something that Americans don't understand. The notion that the state could fight for them and fight for their interests, that's absent, right? I mean, that's just something that the American people have just forgotten, right? It's been erased from their memory, a government that fights on their behalf. Um, and, you know, I mean, the, the right wing is libertarian. Uh, the, the left wing certainly doesn't say that. But the notion that we could have a government that, that didn't work for the corporations but stood up to the corporations, that's a new concept. But if you ask most people, should we have a government that fights for working families, they would say yes, they would want that. But it's not present in the discourse. Um, and I think that we, you know, with I'm, I'm developing a think tank called the Center for Political Innovation. And we are trying to develop a, a socialist populism and re-examine and have classes and and try to orient that. I can't be a member of any political party. I'm a journalist and I, I'm not politically active. I don't register people to vote. I don't campaign for anybody. I'm certainly not you know, out promoting one communist party or other's agenda. I, I think there is an ideological change that needs to happen in the country where people need a basic class conscious socialist you know, understanding. Um, and until that ideological shift happens, things aren't going to get better. I, I remember back during the 2008-2009 financial crisis, um, you know, the economy was crashing and burning. The war in Iraq was very unpopular. And, you know, I saw my classmates at the university wake up, right? You know, a day before they thought America was perfect and the government was, uh, was, 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 you know, trustworthy and the war was necessary to fight terrorism. All of a sudden they wake up, they think that, that the U.S. government and capitalism is, 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 uh, is in crisis and there's a problem. They're opposed uh, to the war. But, uh, 
but they wake up wrong and they say, well, we need real capitalism. We need the free, you know, and that, that there's, you know, we need, we need libertarianism. And, and, and Ayn Rand has written this book called Atlas Shrugged. And that's what's happening right now. And that people were waking up, but they were waking up to become more right wing. Because the problem isn't that people aren't waking up. People are waking up all across the United States. People don't trust the government. They don't like the wars. They, they, they think this, the system is corrupt. But there's an ideological problem. They wake up and become more right wing. They wake up and adopt an ideology other than Marxism, right? And the rise of the alt-right. Uh, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff out there. Yeah. But, but there's an ideological problem. And just, you know, and a lot of 1960s veteran activists don't quite get this. In their day, if you woke up and realized the war and the government was wrong, you became a leftist. It was just common sense. Not anymore. It doesn't work that way anymore. There's so much ideological confusion, and there needs to be an, idea, an ideology, an, a new socialist mindset among the masses that, that when they wake up and start to realize the problems of our society, they explore the Marxist and socialist understanding of what the issue is, right? And until we address that underlying ideological problem, and until we, we deal with what happened during the Cold War and why the Soviet Union fell, what socialism really means, why socialism isn't just when the government does stuff and gives people free stuff, Things aren't going to get better. So that's what I've devoted myself to is building a think tank that will facilitate kind of the rebirth of populist and socialist consciousness. I've tried to popularize the works of William Z. Foster, who I consider to be the greatest American Marxist. Um, I've done a lot of writing myself. I go around the country speaking. Almost every day I get contacted by a new, new person. I mean, I do YouTube lives. People reach out to me and they say, wow, you talk about socialism and communism, but you don't sound like any other socialist and communist. You sound different. You sound completely, completely different. And I do. Um, and I realize that, um, you know, I mean, I think for me, the moment that I realized that I needed to go out on my own and do something was in 2013. Uh, I went to the World Festival of Youth and Students, which is an international gathering of communist youth from around the world. And I met communists from Vietnam and I met communists from China and I met communists from Cuba and Venezuela and communists from India and communists from Sri Lanka and communists from all over the developing world. And they instead of, you know, they didn't wear ripped up clothes and stuff. They wore suits and ties. Um, and they were serious. They were ideological. They knew Marxism backwards and forwards, but they also, uh, they were in touch and they represented big sections of their population, organizations with millions of people. These people were really professional revolutionaries. And the, the same question I got asked over and over again by all these people from so many different countries, what's wrong with American communists? What's wrong with American communists? And that question <laughs> rung in my head, what's wrong with American communists? And then I went to Iran and then I went to Venezuela, and now I've traveled to Russia, and I've realized that Western leftists are out of touch with leftism. They are their own thing. And that there's, you know, it's public now that the CIA has poured lots of money into manipulating and confusing people. But we need to save American leftism from itself. We need a, a kind of leftism in the United States that is populist, that fights for working people, that doesn't seek to create chaos, and, and, and speaks to people in a language they can understand and says we need a government of action to fight for working families. And so that's why I've done what I've done. Um, and it's, you know, it's, I've met great people, and great people have, have come to me and said I've had the same thoughts for the longest time. I've had the same questions for the longest time. You know, I mean, so many people have come to me and said the same thing. Um, and, and I'm hoping that we can get something good going because I mean, so many people have had exactly the same thoughts as me, you know, all on their own and, and we have a problem. And let me just, let me just conclude this part by saying one of the biggest mistakes, um, and I really want to emphasize this is, is a lot of leftists in the United States go around acting and, and speaking like they want a violent revolution. Um, and that, that is a pure middle-class deviation, Right. 
violent revolutions are atrocious, awful occurrences in which lots of people die. Um, and, and they only happen when people have no other choice, right? When, when there's so much suffering and pain in society, it's a kill or be killed situation for millions of people. And they take up gun, uh, guns and arms because they have no other choice and they're desperate. And I, no, no rational human being wants that to happen to their country. Nobody, right? I do not want a violent revolution in the United States. And, and no sane human being wants that, right? That, that maybe it's a middle-class adventurer or a confused teenager who's watched a lot of action movies wants that. But no rational person wants that. And the Communist Party of the United States, the, the Black Panthers, none of those groups ever advocated violent revolution, right? They advocated the people's right to defend themselves if attacked. They advocated transitioning towards socialism through peaceful and democratic means, getting people elected, building community organizations. But never did they go around promoting violent revolution. Um, and that, um, that, that the fact that violent revolution is so widely promoted in the United States, uh, it's really problematic. Um, and, and honestly, you know, nowadays, uh, with the terrorism legislation that they've implemented, um, with the fear, with the mass shootings we see, I can understand why the average American, if they see someone going around and saying, hey, I want a violent revolution, I want a people's war, I want a, a revolutionary civil war, the average American is going to look at them and say, you're nuts, get away from me. So this fetishization of violence has got to, got to stop. We need people to understand that communists are serious, professional leaders who want to save the country from the crisis of capitalism, right? That, that, that we're people that want to improve their lives. But the only way we can do that is by getting rid of, of markets and profits. Brilliant. Uh, a very long answer, but very detailed, very good. Great. Sure. I mean, uh, I think, uh, <laughs> I mean, I was going to ask you, I, I know that you've written before about, and uh, I think this might help perhaps in the vein of uh, developing a, a professional Marxist movement in the West, um, is you've also written, if you don't mind touching on this, about how the American revolutionary tradition is very much, uh, or there is a vein of that that is very much in tune with, with communism, with socialism, that it's not anti-American to be a communist, that it's very, can be, that it can be a very American thing, um, if you mind elaborating on that. Absolutely. I mean, go back to the time of Karl Marx. Karl Marx, the only job he ever had uh, was he was employed by the New York Tribune, which was the Republican Party newspaper of New York City. And he wrote glowing articles about Abraham Lincoln and the fight to abolish slavery in the United States. Uh, you can read those articles that, that he wrote about. And there was a communist general who was in the Union Army, uh, you know, named August Willick. This was somebody who, who wrote, you know, letters to Marx throughout the war and, and was a member of the International Working Men's Association, the first international. So Marx was very involved in the struggle to abolish slavery in the United States. Um, and Abraham Lincoln returned the letter when, when, when the First International gave him their official endorsement in the 1864 presidential election. Abraham Lincoln made a point of writing back to them and thanking them for their endorsement. Um, and that, that Marxists were key in the struggle to abolish slavery. Roosevelt, uh, who's the most beloved president in the United States after Lincoln, uh, you know, he met with labor organizers and communists and socialists at the White House. Um, and he had he made no apology for associating with labor unions and radicals and such and for aligning with the Soviet Union in the Second World War. Uh, he spoke very highly of Joseph Stalin and Henry Wallace, who was his vice president, spoke even more highly in, in, in support of the Soviet Union. So, you know, uh, you know, this idea that, uh, that that there's something un-American about us uh, and about about opposing capitalism, I think, is fundamentally wrong. And in fact, what's interesting is if you look back at the writings of Alexander Hamilton. 
and the writings of uh, of Henry Carey, who was Lincoln's economic advisor, who had been, you know, had had connections to Hamilton, you know, from generations back. Um, both of them were very, very critical of what they called British economics, uh, which is free trade. Um, and they felt that free trade was contrary to what the United States was all about and that the American Revolution had very much been a revolution against free trade and that they argued that the state did have a role, uh, that there should be a national bank that lends money uh, in the interest of the country, that the state should build infrastructure, um, that, uh, that, that it was necessary for, for the government to control interest rates and that, that, that the role of the government should be to balance a harmony of interests uh, between labor and capital. Now, that's not Marxism. That, that is not Marxism, right? That's, that's a different school, but it is very contrary to the economic ideas that prevail in the United States right now. Uh, they were very opposed to Adam Smith. They were very opposed to you know what is now put out by the Chicago School and laissez-faire and greed is good. So in a lot of ways, the American Revolution itself was a revolution against neoliberalism and free trade and global free market capitalism. Um, and that there were many aspects of the American Revolution that were kind of a, a call for the government to protect the American worker and the American manufacturer and such. So, so I think there's many things in American history that one can turn to and point to the fact that there's nothing contrary to what it means to be an American about capitalism. And that, that really, it was during the Cold War that this idea that, that the whole identity of Americans got tied in with greed is good and free trade and all of that. It's only during the Cold War uh, that that idea uh, came in. But one thing I will add is that nowadays, you know, when socialism is associated with Bernie Sanders and socialism is, you know, people say socialism is when the government gives people health care and education for free. Socialism is when the government gives people free stuff. There are many Americans that are kind of put off by that because they say, well, you know, they, they say the American way is working hard and getting ahead and, 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 and being innovative. And if you're just sitting there and saying, oh, I want the government to give me free stuff, that's not really the American way. But I would urge them to go and read the writings of Anna Louise Strong about Stalin's five-year plans. Because if you read about, about what went on in Russia or read about, you know, about what Mao did in China or read some of what Deng Xiaoping did, there's a whole lot of hard work and grit and sacrifice and working hard and loving your community and loving your country that's a big part of what socialism Absolutely. is. The difference is it's not individualist. It's saying we can we can work hard all together to reach these goals. And it's not at the expense of anybody else. Right. Um, and that, you know, during World War Two, one of the most popular movies was a movie called Gung Ho. It was called Gung Ho. And it was about a U group of U.S. Marines who adopted the fighting style of, of Mao and the Eighth Route Army. And, and throughout the movie, they chant Gung Ho, Gung Ho which is a Chinese phrase that means all together, all for one. And that, that, that phrase actually caught on. In the, in the United States, if someone's really enthusiastic, you say they're really gung-ho, they're really gung-ho about it, right? Well, gung-ho, that comes from communism. That was a communist slogan of the Chinese Communist Party that has become you know, associated with the idea of being really enthusiastic and working hard. And so I think that that shows that there is kind of, there is potential for, for the communist ideal of working hard and raising up out of poverty and having a collective vision and the American ideal of, of success and the American dream. I think that they can work together. They don't necessarily have to be contrary to each other. Absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. Or not communism is not laziness. Right. Yes, indeed. Indeed. <laughs> okay. And on that note, I probably need to wrap this up. So is there yes. anything else you want to ask about Just before we conclude? Two final points, uh, just briefly. Uh, one is obviously I just wanted to touch on, you've obviously been engaging with debates online with certain characters, uh, some stuff. I, I just want to see what your thoughts and feelings are on that. And the final thing is a, a very low-hanging piece of fruit. Um, obviously, the, the probably the lowest-hanging political piece of fruit. Uh, 
what is your prediction for Biden Trump November? And uh, if you want, I, I was gonna play. I was gonna uh, place a bet with you. Uh, <laughs> I'm just. I'm just gonna say that. Uh, I think Trump's gonna lose. I want to see what your thoughts are, and let, let, perhaps you'll okay. use a bet of your own. Well, in terms of the debates, I'll debate almost anybody. I've debated white supremacists. I've debated anarchists. I've debated libertarians, and I'll debate almost anybody. I enjoy kind of having these conversations. Um, you know, I'll happily do that. Um, what I find to be scary is that so much of so much of, you know, so many of the the left wing voices that have just sprung up randomly on the Internet and have become like the voice of socialism in the United States have made it kind of their mission to declare anyone who supports existing socialist countries like China or Cuba or Venezuela to be a Nazi. And that's very, very scary. Um, and and you know, I mean, it's one thing to say, well, you don't recognize them, you have some ideological critique, but to equate anyone who would defend them with the far right uh, is just just wrong in so many ways. Um, and it's disturbing that those voices have become dominant, um, you know, on the internet. And and uh, you know, it, it's disturbing. And, and and that trend it worries me. But I feel like it's intentional. I feel like those voices have been lifted up because they are there to poison the well and try to recruit socialists to be advocates of U.S. foreign policy. Um, and interventionism and to echo, you know, State Department and Pentagon talking points. And so that particular trend disturbs me the most. I would say it's probably the most dangerous within socialism. But, you know, I'll debate libertarians. I'll debate anybody. And I enjoy doing it. You know, every so often I might get a proposal from somebody and it's a little weird and I'll, I'll turn it down. But for the most part, I'll debate anybody. Um, as far as the be uh, the election, you know, at this point, um, I'm thinking Trump might have it in the bag. Uh, I'm, I'm not I don't want to place a wager or anything, but you know, I mean, with Biden being so, uh, you know, I mean, he's not exactly Mr. Charisma. Um, right. You know, what, what I find to be scary is that both sides at this point in the United States are saying that the elections are going to be rigged. Democrats are saying that the elections are going to be rigged uh, and Republicans and Trump are also saying that. So no matter who wins, uh, it seems like there's not going to be peace afterwards. The other side will inevitably declare it was an unfair election. So, you know, the instability in U.S. society is increasing and it's, it's really disturbing what's going on with this pandemic and stuff. There's a lot of people that really just want to be able to have a decent job and take care of their kids and have have a decent family and and want, you know, this instability and insecurity to end. And I think that that they need to realize that socialism is the way to get there. So I'll end right. on that. Sound good? That's perfect way to end. Great. All right. All right. Well, thank you very much, Oscar. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Caleb. And uh, we'd love to have you on again in the future. And I'm sure we have lots more to talk about. But yeah, it's been lovely. Thank you very much, Caleb. Anytime. Yeah, yeah.